Hello, welcome to the Loopcast. So today I have uh, Carter Malkasian on the show, and we are discussing his new book, The American War in Afghanistan History. So the kind of the reasoning behind this show, as you most of you know who follow us on Twitter, we have kind of veered away from doing national security shows, right? So for all intents and purposes, our kind of last national security show was with our good friend David Sternman on defining endless wars. The reason, with that being said, the reason we kind of, we wanted to do a show in Afghanistan was less about national security and more about understanding the end. Afghanistan is a conflict that, as, as all of you know, we've been involved in for 20 years, right? So literally an adult lifetime or a long enough time span for somebody to go from, you know, a high schooler to an adult. That's, that's kind of a personal example, but our series now is kind of being built around the idea of understanding the end, putting it in context, putting it in this broader picture. You know, here's 20 years, you know, it ended last month. How do we understand it? And so my guest today is pretty well suited for this because he's written uh, one of the most comprehensive histories of that 20 years, the uh, American war in Afghanistan history. And it's, it's fantastic. I would have to say like the only kind of critique I have of it is that it's, it's a chronological history, right? It's events A to B to C to D covering from 2001 to about 2020, about 2019, 2020, if I remember correctly. And that's a good thing, I think, because when you have something that's 20 years old, you kind of have to you lose sight of kind of the decisions that were made or why they were made. And the book is a fantastic coverage of that. Of course, this is, you know, you have to kind of start with that book and then kind of draw threads from it, right? You know, there's other volumes that, you know, focus specifically on the Taliban or on ISI's involvement in Afghanistan. So the book is an amazing starting point and, and I do highly recommend it. It's probably going to be one of the few books that I have both a digital and a physical copy of, and we'll have a link to it when we publish the show. With that being said, please welcome Carter Macasian. How's it going? I'm doing fine. Thank you for the great compliments um, on everything. I, I, I really appreciate it. I mean, and you're definitely right about, you know, a book being chronological and, and narrative. At some point, I hope to be a more skilled writer that I can, uh, that I can mix up the chronology a little bit or, or, or cover things in a way that doesn't require it. But, but thank you for all the compliments on it. Of course, of course. So for my first question, when we were going through the, the prep of the show, something that I found very fascinating was the arc of your career. You, correct me if I'm wrong, you start in Afghanistan, then you go back to Iraq, and then you go back to Afghanistan. And then you become a political advisor to Joseph Dunford. And, you know, all that is very interesting, because it's all very different perspectives. And when you, when you sat down to write American War in Afghanistan, you know, how did the your professional experiences inform your perspective? You know, was it, you know, was it negative? Was it positive? Or did you, you kind of have to, did you kind of have to sit down and say, I'm a historian writing a historical book, right? So the, you know, it's just one kind of approach to, to generating a history. I mean, so my, I think my professional experiences are kind of definitive and in, in structure the things that I've written. So like the, the book War Comes to Arms here, 
if I hadn't been in Garmsir for two years, I, I wouldn't have written that book. Um, and so that shapes how I see things and, and what I saw to be important and just, and just being able to talk about things on the local level. And then going to Garmsir was shaped by my professional experience because I'd spent time in Iraq um, more as an analyst there than someone who was actually expected to make things happen. But I realized in my time in Iraq that I wanted to do more. I wanted to experience being someone who was responsible for working with the locals and trying to create some kind of change. And, and that inspired me to, to join the State Department to work in Garmsir. So all of that is kind of intimately connected. In terms of how to be a historian at the same time as seeing the, the, these things and, and, and trying to take action, um, so the natural way for me to write about anything was, was as a historian. That, that's how I was trained. That has been, been the vast majority of the books that I've read. So it was very natural to think if I'm going to write anything about this, it's going to be as a historian and try to write it from a kind of on historical perspective. And in some ways that made it easier to divorce the work from my actual day-to-day -day work and the things that were, were trying to be achieved at whatever place I was at. Um, because from a historical perspective, you know, a lot of the details of things that you're dealing with day-to-day -day are probably not going to be the most important things from a historical point of view. Um, and you know, you're trying to look at some of these larger and deeper trends and dynamics that are happening. So that, that, it, that just made it a little bit easier, I think, to write the history there. And the other thing that's important about the professional experience is if you, you say I was in Garmsir, which is a small district in Helmand province, um, is a fairly contested area, a lot of farming going on, about 150,000 when there's the most people in the district live in the district. So it's, it's a very narrow viewpoint. It's like knowing a county in the United States, becoming an expert on a singular county. But then getting to work with General Dunford in, in Kabul, and he's commanding all U.S. forces and allied forces in Afghanistan, that allowed me to have this broader perspective where I could go not just to a district. I go to many districts. I go to many provinces. I could understand better what was happening throughout the country and see how much things that happened in Garmster may have also happened in other places, or maybe different things happened. Maybe there were different things that hit play. So that was an important experience. And then from then, going on to be the senior advisor to General Dunford on the day when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that gave me an even broader perspective and enabled me to kind of uh, see how things were done at the national level, also enabled me to keep in contact with what was happening in Afghanistan. Um, and so that perspective helps a great deal. One of the things you realize at the higher level is just how few solutions can actually work. Just how few ways that we, at the lower level, we may think of a lot of things that could be done to reach a better situation. At the higher level, you realize how much time it takes to implement any one solution. You realize how little time any decision maker has to actually do things. And you realize how many other things are on, are, are on, on the, the, the schedule of a decision maker that need to get done, but that may not have that much to do with actual progress in the conflict. That's interesting. So 
you, you've touched on perspective and, and kind of what I find interesting is telling the story of Afghanistan and the U.S. war in Afghanistan over Iraq. What was sort of the decision process there? It was is it simply, you know, you spent more time in Afghanistan, so that's the history that's going to get written. Or was there something kind of deeper to, to describing Afghanistan and our involvement in Afghanistan over Iraq? Well, the, the simple answer is that um, by the time I started writing this big history, I knew that I knew a lot more about Afghanistan than I did over Iraq. And I had a large amount of experience there. Um, but it also has to do with just how everything was happening in the aughts and the teens and how fast things were moving. So uh, in, in Iraq, I spent most of my time in Anbar province. And I was working with the Marines there as, as an analyst from the Center for Naval Analysis, CNA. And I had great experiences there. I was able to, I, I was, I, I was able to also go throughout that province, see all kinds of things were happening. I spent large amounts of time with the various battalions and companies and such that were, that were out in the field. And that was a really tremendously educational experience. And when I got, when I, when I, and I was there from 2004 to 2005, then I was again there in 2006. And when I left, I left just as the Ambar Awakening was getting going. And then, you know, about six months after that, the Ambar Awakening had kind of reached its height and Al-Qaeda in Iraq was, was being defeated in Ambar. And so you could really see this story of how there had been success in Ambar. And I actually started to write a book on that. In, in 2008, I started to write a book on that because I had, I had seen a lot there. And, but then in 2009, as we talk about the speed of events and things happening, then I had the opportunity to go to, with State Department to Afghanistan Arms here. And I took that up. And that meant that that book I was writing got shelved. It eventually got published in 2017, much, much later. Um, but because I wanted to be involved in things, that meant the book, that book took secondary priority and I became immersed in Afghanistan. And the other thing is Afghanistan, um, I, I took the step of learning the language, which I kind of tried to do in Iraq with Arabic, but I never put enough time into it. But after being in Iraq, I, for one thing, I, I saw all the Marines who did know, some of the Marines who did know Arabic, and I saw how proficient they were, and I saw how able they were to build trusting relationships with the local populations. And, and a number of them like really inspired me for in terms of their skills. I mean, there was one lieutenant, but one called Abu Yusuf, who was uh, had outstanding Arabic, and all of the Iraqi leaders would trust him for that Arabic. And he also he was just able to understand because if you can talk directly to someone, you don't need an interpreter, and talk to anyone in a room, and it, it's very it's very intuitive you will know more that's happening. You will hear more directly. You will be less impaired in, in your ability to, to trade information. Um, and so that was just crystal clear to me coming out of Iraq. And therefore I took the effort to learn Pashto. And, and before I got to Afghanistan, then Afghanistan itself. And so that meant that I had a, a greater level of knowledge of what was happening in, in Garmsir than I ever was in any place in Ambar. And then over time, I got a greater understanding of what was happening in Afghanistan compared to Iraq. I still believe that I, that, that, that I have some valuable, I guess, thoughts and insights on Iraq. Um, and I certainly consider that the, the time they're well spent. But in terms of where was I going to write a large, expansive history, that seemed to naturally be that I would write that on Afghanistan. 
I guess one of the other th differences between Iraq and Afghanistan, Iraq has, has great strategic importance to the United States. So that's not saying the 2003 invasion was the, was the right decision. But there's, because of how much terrorism has come out of Iraq in terms of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then the Islamic State, in terms of its strategic location in, in the middle of the Middle East, Iraq has a certain strategic importance. But I think for many of us who have been to Afghanistan, Afghanistan has an addiction associated with it. There's something about Afghanistan. There's something about the terrain, the mountains, the forests where there are forests, the rushing rivers, the people and their hospitality and how they're so much want to be friends and, and are so welcoming. It's not to say that the, the Iraqis, I don't mean that in any way that the Iraqis aren't good people, but there's just simply something about Afghanistan. And it's ironic because, you know, in Iraq, there were very, very few insider attacks. These are the tragic events when an uh, Afghan soldier would turn their weapons on a U.S. soldier or U.S. civilian or an allied soldier or civilian. And these are some of those painful events to see and one of the things that worried us most in Afghanistan. Those kind of events rarely, rarely happened in Iraq. So it's just kind of ironic that Afghanistan has this addictive nature to it. Yet it was also somewhere that was indeed quite dangerous. So then when you sat down to write the book in, in 2013 or so, you know, how much did you separate out Iraq from Afghanistan in terms of, you know, I remember like the meme that sort of goes around is that Iraq was the illegal war. It's the unjust war. It's the the war we were kind of all manipulated into and consenting to in 2003, whereas the origins of the Afghan war are in 2001, the 9-11 attacks. It's the justified war or whatever, you know, however that argument is expressed. But there's also this other, this other part of it that says that the Afghan war, you know, immediately suffers because, you know, resources are going to Iraq. So when you sat down to, to, to write the history, you know, how much, how much of it was just separating out those two events and just like kind of intellectually drawing a circle around Afghanistan and saying that, yeah, we'll mention Iraq here and there, but we're just going to wholly focus on Afghanistan. I mean, so you're really right there that, that in the book itself, I don't talk a lot on Iraq and that it's, it's mentioned here and there, just like you said. But I don't get a lot in detail on it. And there's definitely a connection there between the two and then the resources being taken from one to the other or resources not going to the other because the, the one has become so important. And I think there is a place for there to be a good history about the decisions that were made and what kind of resources ended up going to Iraq that might otherwise have been in Afghanistan. And I think I you know, saw a look on that between the 2002 to say that probably the 2007 time frame. I expect that to come over time. I didn't do that in, in, in my book itself. Well, really, because I felt I knew that my book was going to be long. Um, and I, I, I thought that if I, if I go in that direction, that I'll, it'll become too long. And just like you were also saying, that it, it's going to put us it that it will take the focus away. You mentioned that you know, I put a circle around Afghanistan on, and maybe you might say some of the, the regional countries. Um, but if I focus too much on Iraq, 
then it was going to take away from that focus on Afghanistan. And I didn't want to get lured into writing a book that's going to sound like partly a history of the Iraq war. I was trying to scope and contain what I was doing. But I, I mean, I remember well in, in Iraq. So I, in, in 2003, I went to, I was uh, an advisor again with the Marines. I spent most of my time in Kuwait, only a small amount of time in Iraq itself. But I floated over there on the USSS Boxer, uh, along with a lot of the Marines going over there. And I remember when I got on the ship and how everyone was very much uh, felt that we were doing the right thing, that there was a real cause here, that there was a threat to the United States, terrorism struck the United States, and that Iraq was connected to this. And so what we were doing was right. Now, I went to UC Berkeley to, to get my undergraduate, so I had a kind of natural skepticism of the war. And I was having a hard time putting the dots together because I didn't, I, I could, I understood that Saddam wasn't a good person, but I wasn't seeing exactly how he was connected to the attacks of 9-11. But I kind of kept my mouth shut on what my, what my thoughts were, and only with a few people scared any, shared any skepticism I might have. But what really convinced me, this gets to your point about how we were all kind of roped in. And so what really turned me is I was watching Colin Powell was standing, I was on the bridge and the flag, the flag bridge, which is inside the ship. And there was a TV screen on, and I don't remember if it was CNN or Fox News or, or, or if it was the Armed Forces Network, but they had Colin Powell speaking at the Security Council, speaking to the UN and laying out the evidence. And I thought to myself, I still can't make sense of the evidence very well. I still don't know enough. But if Colin Powell is up there in front of the world saying it, well, there's probably something to it. There's probably something that's there. Now, of course, that turned out to not be the case, um, which then you know, gets to, to your point again about us getting roped in. And yeah, Afghanistan at that time was the good war. And we saw it as the good war, the one that wasn't, that wasn't mistaken. Um, and everyone kind of saw it as the good war. Uh, and President Bush certainly did. President Obama mentioned it to be such. Uh, lots of newspapers, including ones that later became against the war, at that time were saying we should send more troops in. There was great worry by 2007 and 2008 that the war was being lost and something had to be done or Al-Qaeda would reform safe havens and there'd be more threats to the United States. And you also have to think about this in terms of Osama bin Laden was still at large during these years. So there, there's this, this sense that it was the good war, um, still a sense that it could be won and there could be, there could be success. Um, but over time, that sense of the good war, obviously, as we think about it today, also, also dissipated. And it dissipated, I'd say, because of the surge and, and how many forces we sent there and how many casualties were there. And it dissipated because it became clear that the conflict couldn't be easily won. It dissipated because the government looked more corrupt than I think we, we had initially thought it, it to be. And then today you kind of get, and you get this odd juxtaposition between Iraq and Afghanistan, where Afghanistan is the war that was lost and Iraq is a war with a lot of pain and it was a mistake on, and that was unjust. Yet the situation in Iraq today, I think we'd say, meets U.S. interests better than the situation in Afghanistan does. And it's hard to, to, to take all those things apart and to really see what's, see what's happening. Um, it is important that right now there still are troops in Iraq, U.S. troops in Iraq. I think that's a, a component to why we see our, our aims being met.
in these kind of countries and in, with these kind of situations, these kind of conflict, a lot of the reasons for the conflict are very deep down, very, very intrinsic, very inherent. And our departure allows these uh, dynamics and the instability often to reemerge, even if our presence had, had temporarily suppressed it. Uh, and so Iraq too may in the future um, end up us not seeing that our goals were entirely met because it's unknown how long we can continue to be there. So I'm sorry about that. I think the end I was rambling a little bit on, on, on things. I was trying to draw it together on kind of strategic purpose. But I mean, good question about how does one partition Iraq from Afghanistan? So how do you, as a historian, kind of separate out your skepticism from, from recording, from writing history, right? How do you, something that I noticed about your writing in, in, in the war come, in the American war in Afghanistan, it was this very much a kind of a clinic in history writing. Like do you, I had a hard time actually getting, kind of finding your skepticism or finding your kind of any negative arguments. It was very faithful reporting. So, but, you know, kind of drawing back when we started doing research for the show, you know, war comes to comes here, 30 years of conflict on the Afghan frontier was very much, it harkens back to, to Vietnam. I, I don't know if, you know, you intentionally named the book that or if your publisher did, but when you sat down, did you ever kind of position your your work in reference to to the Vietnam War, or is it simply you know you know history has a place, skepticism has a place, critique has a place. Let's just write a chronographic history and not try to you know have it be a sort of indictment similar to writings on the Vietnam War. So I chose the title War Comes to Arms here, but I was also suggested to me by several people, including Elliot Cohen, Johns Hopkins, and John Noggle, who uh, was, was at Center for a New American Security for a while, and right now is at the U.S. Army War College, author of Eating, Learn to Eat Soup with a Knife. Um, and so that particular book, when I was in Iraq, I found that book tremendously useful because most of the books you read about a topic uh, like Afghanistan or Iraq are from the national level. They don't look at what's happening in a town or a village or in a province. But Jeffrey Race's book does do that. And he does it with remarkable detail and remarkable insight into, into what's happening and raises these questions that really make you ask, do we un did we understand what was going on? I mean, a great example of that is he would say that, um, so there's this argument in Iraq, Afghanistan, and in Vietnam, that the reason people sided with the insurgent side or helped the insurgent side was that they were intimidated, that the insurgents were threatening them. And that was how the insurgents got support. And Jeffrey Race would say, well, you know, that doesn't actually make sense in the end. Some people can be intimidated, but everyone can't be intimidated. They can't be intimidating their, their, their fighters to fight. They can't be intimidating every commander to give, to give orders. At some point, there's a group of people who are actually motivated and want to do this, and not because of intimidation, which I thought was a, a very powerful thing to say. But he, he had a, a variety of other tremendously insightful things to lay out. And what he did is he covered Long An from a viewpoint of he covers about 20 years of its history. And so when I was in Garms here, I thought that, well, this is 
I, I can, I understand this county, I understand its history, and I could write something similar to Jeffrey Race's. Now, I say Jeffrey Race's book is definitely superior to my, to my book, um, but, it, but as a model, I, I, I'm definitely happy that I, that I use it as a model there. Now, you also asked, though, about objectivity and neutrality and um, how one does that. Well, any book by someone who was there is almost by definition not objective because you're too close to what happened. You have friends, American friends, maybe Afghan friends, and some of them have died. You spent a lot of your time there in the country. Um, and if you want to work on this, and you really, in, in my view, if you're in Afghanistan or Iraq and you want to make a difference, your heart has to be in it. You need to convince Iraqis and Afghans that you really care about them or are going to do things uh, for them, and that you care about their lives, their livelihood, their families. You don't want to see them harmed. And I don't think that's something one can really fake. Um, so that kind of commitment then is going to naturally bleed into the writing. Now, I still think it's worthwhile to write the books because the the granular feeling of what happened on the ground, um, the stories of what was occurring, and, and those events, there may be, it may be affected by some degree of lack of objectivity, but just that information is valuable for anyone looking back, is valuable for anyone to understand, you know, what's happening. So objectivity has to be balanced by an understanding of what's, uh, of what's really going on. You know, if you, if you look at, there's many, many histories of say the second world war on, um, but we repeatedly go back to the histories of those who were there at the time and what they saw, because it's, it's important for us to, to really understand the feelings, what was going on, really understand what people saw causing things to happen at the time. And there's things that just won't get recorded in the, in, in the documents. And to these days, we're really talking about the emails and the tweets and the, um, and the WhatsApp messages that, there's things that are happening that won't get recorded. Um, there's the fact that someone was angry that day or someone had had a bad night or someone has a, a difference of opinion with, with someone else. And that's driving how decisions are being made. There's the, there's the meeting that happened in the back room that's never recorded, but you know about it because you were there and saw them walk into the back for, for these things to happen. There's the fact that someone wrote something down or said something, but that's not really what they were thinking. And if you don't know that person and know how they felt about things and you weren't driving in a car with them speaking posture to them, you're not going to find out what they were really thinking. Um, so, I mean, that kind of stuff, I think, is extremely, it's extremely valuable for history. When I wrote things, I was, I tried to be sensitive that not to let my own opinions and thoughts about what was right or wrong get in the way of the history. And, to try to keep that out because I recognized the fact that I wasn't entirely objective on all points. And there were times like that I write, that I'd write something and I'd write something critical. And, and then upon reading the draft later on, I decided to remove that because I was too close to events and it's better on um, just to, just to let things flow. But I mean, I kind of, I do hope that you were able to see in the book that there are, you know, things I'm critical of and things that I think were, were incorrect and that there were different ways that the, the war could have gone if we had taken um, some different actions. 
on so hopefully that comes out there and it doesn't come out as just you know entirely entirely clinical and things um i did want to with a variety of leaders i did try to paint them in a way that you could see the different perspectives they had and understand the different pressures that were on them and cars is really a, a good example of that um and i was trying to do that on purpose so we can maybe understand a little bit more of car's eye and 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 the things that were affecting him so you look at car's eye today and, and one thinks well his family is very corrupt he may be corrupt himself um uh, he was extremely uh, resistant to the united states and the things we were interested in at the, at the end but he said some extraordinarily obnoxious things about uh, u.s servicemen and, and people who died at times he called the taliban his brothers he was involved in a extremely fraudulent election and uh, and that he in the end benefited tremendously from i uh, never really got out into the front lines enough uh, in especially in the latter parts of the war to, to make a big difference so these you know his there there's a looking at him there are these things that that appear to be very negative but i also wanted to portray some of the other things about cars i so we could have some an understanding of him so one of those is like think about in in 2001 in 2001 taliban we we attack afghanistan the taliban still control kandahar and their capital and all the area around kandahar Karza decides he's going to leap on a motorcycle with one other with with three other guys two of them on another motorcycle and these two motorcycles are going to drive up into the into the heart of southern afghanistan into urzgan and raise a bunch of people to rebel against the taliban they go and do that the taliban chase them down karza has to get out of uh, get out of dodge on a helicopter that's sent by the united states he goes back in a few days later with the special forces team they work their way south he does negotiations with the taliban calls for peace talks finally gets to kandahar and at the same time in germany at at, at the bonn conference it's decided to be afghanistan's interim leader so you, know, you just listen to that story and you, know, you there's real heroism there he's really trying to bring peace he's really trying to also at the same time prevent there from being civilian casualties against his people i'm um, in you look in in if you take it for that time you know in retrospect we can say well karzai was the wrong leader but if you think about the events of that time and look at what he did it's then hard to see how a different leader might have been selected and you can also think a little bit further down the line on karzai so karzai becomes a strange to us to a great deal because of civilian casualties the civilian casualties that are that our actions are creating and he wants to see those stopped it it upsets him tremendously to see innocent afghans especially children killed and at first he doesn't say that much to us and he raises his voice more he starts to bring things up he's kind of his his people will will say that they're concerned about it but we don't do anything about it and then so eventually he's taking the bully pulpit uh to make it clear how upset he is and he's being resistant to things that we want done because he wants to see civilian casualties reduced and then Karzai also he has this recognition that he is he he understands that there is an insurgency in the country and that if he turns against the Taliban too vociferously he'll only give them more legitimacy if he acknowledges that there's an insurgency if he doesn't say they're his brothers if he attacks them then he'll be he'll be legitimizing that there is an organization in Afghanistan movement in Afghanistan that's conducting jihad against him And so he knows that's a bad political decision to make. 
So instead, he focuses his ire on Pakistan, trying to paint Pakistan as the adversary and the Taliban as the puppet of Afghanistan rather than himself as the puppet of Americans. And he presses this as hard as he can, and, and he wants the United States to take action against Pakistan so that the Taliban's safe havens can be removed and, and the Taliban be defeated. That's his vision for success. Now, the success, that, that vision of success is horribly flawed. He's expecting the United States to do something that's extremely dangerous. Um, he himself isn't taking enough action in it. He's also not going down on the ground very much to inspire his, his soldiers, his men, or his tribesmen, and to help his people enough. Um, but, so I, I wouldn't call him a great military leader there, but we can understand how he came to doing these things. Um, so I don't know, maybe that, that helps a little bit with this, is in terms of like how I was thinking about perspective, how I was thinking about how I want to explain who these people are. Um, so, so to try to make it understandable. And I guess the other thing I'd say here is that we spent 20 years in Afghanistan. We have to have some understanding of how people ended up doing that. And the people who did that, including myself, I don't believe them all to be evil. I don't believe them all to be stupid. Um, I'm not sure I would even call, call everyone misguided. And so I, I'd rather point out how good people ended up making these choices that ended up in a 20-year war and, and eventually defeat then to simply dismiss them all as like stupid, misguided people and how could they have made these obvious mistakes? Because I guess in the end, I don't think the mistakes were that obvious. And I think the bigger danger is how, how a country can go down these paths and how good people can go down, down these paths and end up some, with something that's, that's uh, wholly dissatisfying. So on that note, you have, please correct me if I'm wrong, you have characterized the war in Afghanistan as a loss. And if, if you could <clears throat> elaborate for us what that means, because like I was, I was kind of struggling while going through the history of defining what a lost state is when there are, to me at least, there weren't any consistent goals of success, right? Was it, you know, a counterterrorism mission? Was it a state building mission? Was it, you know, a standing up the army and police arm and assist kind of counterinsurgency or however, you know, whatever you want to call that. But, you know, going back to the idea of a loss, you know, you know, define what that means for us. Like, what is, what does a loss mean when it comes to describing the war in Afghanistan? So calling it a loss or calling it a failure is one of the most has long been for me one of the most painful things to say about Afghanistan. It, it's made a little bit easier by the testimony yesterday of the Secretary of Defense and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, where they call it a strategic failure. But we, I always feel like when I call it a loss or a defeat or a failure that I'm, um, uh, th that I'm saying something horribly upsetting to all the U.S. servicemen and women that I worked alongside in Afghanistan. It's like I'm saying something that, that, that tarnishes them. So it's not something I like saying, but the problem is that if you and I were to argue about this and you were to say, and you were to argue that, that no, this is a loss and you were to go objective by objective, you'd win the argument. Um, and so what, is it, what does it mean for it to be a loss? You're right, some of our objectives change in Afghanistan over time. So, but we can, we can take some of the objectives that the, the different administrations had 
and I think we can we we can demonstrate how it was a loss. So the, the Bush administration's objective was to defeat Taliban, defeat Al Qaeda, and other terrorist groups. And once there was a democracy and there was some peace in Afghanistan, that we would be able to leave. The timeline for departure was never really discussed. There's so that there, there's not a there's not a kind of firm plan there, but it's it's clear that that was there, that that's how they were thinking about things in 2001, 2002. Um, so off those goals, well, the Taliban obviously weren't defeated. Um, the we did not leave in a situation of peace, and there was no democracy at the end. President Obama also had a well-defined set of goals. So his goals were to were also due to uh, defeat al-Qaeda, but then all to, to enable, he, he, instead of defeating the Taliban, his goal was more to enable the Afghan state to stand up on its own so that we could leave and turn the fight over to them. Because by that time, there was an understanding that we weren't going to be able to defeat the Taliban by military means. It wasn't going to be possible. So he was more willing to accept, we'll have an ongoing war in Afghanistan, but it's going to be a war that the Afghans are fighting, not a war that the United States is fighting. Um, so by that measure, we have also failed. On The Afghan government has cl- was clearly not able to stand on its own. And even if we were to look, look back in 2015 or so, it was clear at that point with the defeats they were suffering on the ground that they weren't going to be able to stand very long after we left. And, and whether that's a, a month, two months, a year, two years, three years, four years, from a long-term perspective, it's, it's all kind of the same thing. On, in terms of Al-Qaeda, we did them tremendous damage. On, and so that objective is kind of almost met. And we have to kind of, I think it really depends on in the future what happens. But I mean, the fact is Al-Qaeda does remain, and they remain in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. So it's hard right now to count that as, a, as an accomplishment. So on the basis of those factors, we, you, that, that comes to failure. Now, you may also ask, okay, but what about all the other objectives we've talked about over time that have been important to us in Afghanistan? I mentioned democracy, but there's also women's rights, economic development of the country, sometimes poppy removal, on the, the ed- development of education all of those reasons that many Americans saw as important. So most of those were never stated as official goals in Afghanistan. Some of them were during the, the Bush administration, like improving women's rights that was stated in a few speeches and such, but it's not really codified in any kind of actual um, strategic document. And during the, the Obama administration where they were codifying those things, that, that doesn't appear there. But just because it's not in an official document doesn't mean it wasn't important to American decision makers or the American people. Women's rights has clearly been important to the, to the American people. If it wasn't important, it wouldn't be evacuating the kind of the number of people we've evacuated over the past two. And it was important for members of Congress. It was important for uh, people in the executive branch. And even if it wasn't officially stated, it was something dear to Americans. You know, and, and it, but in that sense, too, I, I don't think that we've accomplished what our goals were, were set out to be there for women's rights to be lasting. That's not to say it's a complete defeat. I mean, just the fact that so many women were educated, that's a change. And there are girls, some number of girls that are still going to school in Kabul, even under the Taliban. So it's not a complete defeat, but it's hard to market as a, that, that as, a, as a complete success. And we're talking about education, health care, economic development. 
we're kind of talking about the same kind of the same kind of situation there for Afghanistan. Um, so if you want to say then, well, what did we accomplish? What good was done in Afghanistan? Um, the easiest thing to say is that for the 20 years we were there, attacks on terrorist attacks on the United States were either prevented or suppressed to a very low level. Um, and that's what we asked the servicemen and women to go there to do. And that was the main goal for every president. Um, and so for 20 years to have done that is an accomplishment. It's not success, but it is something that's there. I'm not sure if that's enough to make people feel happy about the situation. Um, another success is for those 20 years that in some places, like Mazar, most of well, Kabul, and even parts of places like Helmand, um, people lived without violence. There may have been violence in the countryside, but in many areas of Afghanistan, people lived with, in, in safety and with freedoms. Um, again, that's not enough to call it a success, but if you, you want to see how it changed some people, that, that's there. And then for those people living in those 20 years, women experienced more, the country as a whole experienced more education, economic development improved during those times. Ambassador Kulza, I'd like to say that the Afghanistan's exposure to the United States has been tremendously beneficial. And there's truth to that statement. That, that's, not, that's not incorrect. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean we won. Um, and that doesn't mean we didn't fail in the end. So then... In that sort of thinking, you know, if if we consider the U.S. position a loss, then, you know, immediately what comes to mind is that the Taliban won. And the same question, you know, applies to the Taliban. How do we describe, you know, that victory? I'm putting victory in quotes. Like, how do we describe that victory? You know, what enabled it? Is it like I have, you know, we're, we're digging into sort of how the Taliban created their narratives and, and sort of push out a narrative, but I still, even with all that reading, you know, and, and examination, I still have kind of a hard time explaining or conceptualizing, you know, how did the Taliban win or how, how were they able, for instance, to take over so many provinces so quickly upon the U.S.'s pullout from Afghanistan? Well, on that question, the most important thing is that the Taliban didn't win in the last two months. The Taliban won in the preceding 20 years, and especially the preceding 10 years. Um, there, what happened at the end was merely the denouement of what was already happening. The Taliban had already uh, made great strides in the countrysides. Um, they had already managed to get into certain cities, hadn't taken any. Um, they had already set things up that they would be able to succeed, whether quickly or in a long-term fashion, once the United States left. And those indications were clear. We had seen time and time again how Afghans on their own, since about 2015, usually would not be able to defeat the Taliban. If they had U.S. air support, that's different. And it was definitely different if U.S. troops were on the ground with them. But on their own, without that air, without that U.S. air support, more often than not, they did they did not succeed, and that included their special operations forces, which were vaunted, highly trained, very very professional. On, um, so 
it's something that happens before that. And how are the Taliban able to do that? Some of the answers are things that we know pretty well at this point. You really can't, you can't take, one of the key things is, is the safe haven and sanctuary the Taliban had in Pakistan. And I don't really, it, it's less important what the role of the Pakistani government was in this than that the Taliban had a place to hide, had a place where they could live, had a place where they could take, take their wounded, had a place to, that they could train people without being interfered with. That gave them some, some greater longevity there. On also important, I'm not going to name everything that, that mattered for the Taliban to be able to do things. Also that's mattered is their cohesion. The Taliban are a fairly united body. That's not to say they're entirely united. And it's not to say that they're like the, the U.S. military or something like that. It is to say that they don't have as many fractures and feuds as the Afghan government does. So take like in 2014, the Afghan government formed a unity government because President Ghani and the runner-up and, and, and President Ghani and the other, his, his, and his um, competitor in the election, Dr. Abdullah, when the election happened, they couldn't agree upon who was actually president. So the United States had to come in and work a deal um, that gave some power to some, some power to another, and the two sides continued to, to conflict and debate with each other for the next five years over who actually had enough power. On the Taliban, in the next year, they discover that Mullah, it's information was released that Mullah Omar is dead. And the Taliban have to go through their own kind of succession and transition problem. And there is indeed some violence that occurs out of that because some people don't want to accept the new leader, Akhtar Mohammed Mansour. But eventually the Taliban come around and he does become the single leader and people fall in behind him. And they don't have the kind of divisions and difficulties that the Afghan government does. They're able to run an efficient, an efficient campaign. How does this happen? Why is it so different between the two? Part of it is the, the Taliban, you know, they're, they're largely religious leaders. Their leadership is. And many of the, 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 the foot soldiers are, are, are students from madrasas. And many of the leaders themselves are students of madrasas. And they have a certain view of a relationship that should exist um, between students and teachers or between fighters and commanders. And they put a much greater stress on obedience than, say, the tribes do that are on the side of the Afghan government or the different bodies in the Afghan government do. There's much more of a sense that the student needs to obey what the teacher. They have a form of allegiance called the bayat. It's wearing bayat, wearing allegiance to, 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 to a leader or another commander. And so that filters through the Taliban. You can read about that if you read like the biography, the autobiography of, of one of the, the one Taliban leader. He, he talks about this in very um, explicit terms. Um, you can hear if you talk to their Taliban commanders, how rapidly they will bring up that we were one. We obey the uh, Mir al-Mu'amin. We, we don't have conflicts like others do. You can read it in, uh, in the guidance Mullah Omar would give to stay out of tribal feuds. Don't get involved in that. That's a, that's a waste of time. That's not our way of of doing work. Um, you can hear it from Afghan commanders themselves. We'll talk about the Taliban don't have the problems we have. We're arguing with each other and, and the Taliban, they run by a different system. Um, so that, 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 is a, that is a strategic advantage. Being able um, to be united, united we stand, divided we fall, is an advantage in combat. 
And over and over again, I can point to examples where various forces on the government side decided not to fight. Like one part would decide not to fight. If you have, a, if you have on the government side, tribal militia, on army soldiers, police, maybe defending a district, there's multiple examples of one of those groups deciding they're not going to fight um, because they don't want to work with the other, with the other side. Um, so that, that explains the, the cohesion, that, that's cohesion, but let me bring up one other point that is, that is thick in the book. And that gets to Karzai's point earlier about being a puppet. The government couldn't shake the image of being a puppet. The government couldn't shake the image of working with occupiers. And in Afghan identity, working with occupiers is, in Afghan identity, fighting occupation, resisting occupation runs deep. About the Soviet-Afghan war, uh, the war with the British, uh, the wars with the British in the 19th century, and even before that in their earlier history. It's something that is actually prominent in, in many cultures and in many countries, but it, it's there in Afghanistan. So the Taliban are able to call upon that. The Taliban are able to inspire their fighters to wage war against resistance, to wage war against the occupiers. The government could not inspire its side to go to similar lengths, could not inspire their, their men to go to the ultimate end to, to defend the government. Their, their commanders were more, their commanders and their fighters, you know, they, they, never, they never conducted attacks behind enemy lines like the Taliban would. They never conducted as bold of attacks upon, um, upon positions. They never defended as long as the Taliban did. And they're defending positions because it's harder to inspire when you're on the side of the occupier and that occupier happens to be on from a different religion. So that, those are deep reasons as to how we get to the situation of August of this year, or really July of this year, where their forces are already in a bad position, already not doing well. And then certain shocks happen and everything falls apart. So when you have that situation and then we say we're going to withdraw, that's shocked. It's when they're then seeing that in the battlefield, various forces are retreating or leaving, that's a further shock to the system. As they hear about various, various police and, and, and government forces making deals with the Taliban to lay down arms, that's a shock. And it becomes like a stock market crash. Everyone can see that the prices are, are the prices are going down. So best to sell as fast as you can rather than stick it out in this case, rather than fight. Um, so that leads things to fall apart very, very quickly. The foundations weren't good and the foundations probably weren't going to be good. And that that's one of the most difficult things to understand about Afghanistan, I think is that we were never, we probably unlikely ever to succeed. What we could do is stay there in small numbers or in some number to protect what our interests were. And we decided, and I think the, the reasons were compelling, we decided that that wasn't worth it. It was better to leave. Um, but when we left, the Afghans weren't going to be able to, to continue on their own. So I don't know, hopefully, I, I think I've talked way too long on that one. So hopefully that, uh, know, hopefully that answers some of the questions. So we've kind of discussed like the Taliban's performance in combat and kind of what I'm interested in is kind of a two-part argument. One is, you know, the political argument of resisting an occupier is, you know, it's a very, you can easily sort of understand it, but what happens when, you know, as we're seeing the Taliban, you know, becomes the one in, in charge and, and in power, you know, how long 
does that narrative of of resistance of you know resisting you know the foreign occupier last like how does you know how does the Taliban change its kind of political pitch and its kind of political ideation to fit being in charge? So their vision is going to be and has been, and what I expect us to see is that they'll say we're implementing Islamic law and we are following Islam in our rule. They will say we, we can provide stability. It's been 40 years of instability and civil war, you know, with the exception of the brief time we were in power in the 90s, um, and, and now we're going to be able to institute stability. They won't have the same kind of problems the government had because they're not aligned clearly with a foreign power. And even if they're aligned with Pakistan, that's not as bad as being aligned with us. Um, there are no foreign troops inside of Afghanistan, so they can declare themselves to be independent. They're benefiting from having, in one way or another, driven us out. That gives them tremendous legitimacy. They have done what other you know, great Afghan rulers um, have done. The only difference is that other Afghan rulers have been kind of kings, and they're, they're an Islamic movement. Um, so they'll move forward with that, with, with Islamic law, stability, as the basis for their legitimacy. Um, now, over time, they're probably going to have some challenges. One challenge they're already trying to grapple with, which is what, who's going to fund them? How are they going to get money? Afghanistan, Afghan governments have traditionally depended on outside to be able to survive, sometimes from Britain, sometimes from Russia, sometimes from us. So they're going to be looking for this outside funding. Um, and that's why they're talking to us and want to see humanitarian aid return. That's why they want to be in the UN. Um, they recognize that all the things that have been happening effectively there in Afghanistan are because of our assistance. So like the clinics and the schools that are running inside of Afghanistan right now in various areas in the countryside, those are the clinics and schools that we set up. Those are the clinics and schools that we funded the Taliban and create those. The Taliban are aware of that. They know if the funds stop coming in, they won't be able to pay teachers. They won't be able to pay for school supplies. They won't be able to pay for medicine anymore. So they want to make sure that that stuff comes in. And it will be a challenge for them because it's just simply unlikely that they're going to get the kind of funding that the, that the Ghani government had. Even I mean, unless China really decides that they're going to put in support for the Taliban, which it's not clear that they are, that the Taliban have a very big problem in delivering um, goods and services. The other problem they're going to have is much more intrinsic to Afghanistan. Afghanistan, there is a shortage of land and there is a, a shortage of arable, arable land and a shortage of water. And there's a lot of people who want, who want land and who want to have a means of survival. So the Taliban have favored certain people in, in the countryside and have allowed them to have land and have allowed them to, to grow poppy. And that's been the base of the Taliban support. But if the Taliban doesn't want to upset the other folks who are on the, maybe have been on the opposite side from them, but they're just simply other folks who want land and want water, if if they're not able to satisfy them, then they will have some degree of dissatisfaction, some degree of, of revolt that occurs. And because these land problems and these feuds are intractable, no government is able to handle them really effectively, and neither could the Taliban during their rule. Um, so this is going to be a, a real headache for them. That doesn't mean that you're going to see another insurgency necessarily, but it is, a, it, is, it is a headache that exists there. And I guess the last headache that they're going to have to face is the rest of the region. On um, the rest of the region, you know, it's uh, there's you know, 
you know, between Iran, Russia, China, Pakistan, India, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan on the northern border. There's a lot of different con- countries, a lot of different interests. And it's going to be hard for the Taliban to satisfy all of them. And the more influence any one of those countries has inside of Afghanistan, the more it's sure to upset at least one of the others. So that's going to be a, a balancing act that the Taliban will have to perform. Um, so I, mean, th- I think those are some of the challenges that they face. I think they do have a, they have a basis for legitimacy right now. Their problems, I think, are going to be the more practical problems that actually will. So what, I mean, you know, politics can be, you know, manifest in sort of reality and, and through land reform and, and what have you, but what are the sort of cultural arguments that the Taliban makes? Because it, it seems like <clears throat> being able to make a, a certain set of arguments in the provinces might be successful, you know, resisting the occupier or these applications to Islam and to, you know, historical, you know, Afghan identity, but how does that work when you when you come to a, a more urban environment like Kabul? You know, do they do they change the the nature of the the cultural and sort of national argument, or is it simply, you know, you, you know, it's Islam. Islam is universal. This is how it's going to be. So the main the how I laid out of what their argument is going to be. I mean, so that's. That, I think, is going to stay the same. It's what we've heard the Taliban leaders state. They've said it in Doha to us. They've said it in other locations to us. Mullah Baradar and, and others have essentially you know, stated how I, things, how I laid things out in terms of Islamic law and, and providing stability. Um, now, the difference when it comes to the cities, maybe a mild difference in interpretation. So in the cities, they're, they're, Taliban are sensitive to the fact that they could get you know, international criticism for how they treat people. Um, and they also, I don't think that they inherently want to see a lot of revolt. So if there's a way that they can do things to prevent that, I think they'll be willing to. I mean, especially in terms of rhetoric. I mean, many, uh, many Taliban on the political commission said to me over and over again, oh, we don't want a monopoly. We are going to include people. We'll include women. We're going to protect women and help them. Um, but so what, what I'd expect to see in the cities is that they will let more women go to school. They will let some number of, of women work. They will try to ensure that education is going on in these areas. They will try to provide some freedoms to the press, although that I think from, from I think those will get restricted over time, but they're going to try to be more lenient in that regard than they, than they would otherwise. They're going to try to let U.S. NGOs and, 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 and NGOs from, from throughout the world work inside, of, work inside of Kabul in the cities and maybe even a little bit in the countryside. Um, they're going to want want the, the embassies to stay in place, want the UN to be there. So they will not try, they will try to not have the most, the harshest interpretation of, of Islamic law in place in the city. So try to have a somewhat more lenient interpretation there because they want people living there. They, I'm sure they want Karza to keep on living in Kabul. I'm sure they want Dr. Abdullah to keep on living in Kabul. Um, they will try also to bring in some number of Tajiks and Uzbeks into their government. It might be cosmetic, probably will be cosmetic, but they're going to want to do that to try to satisfy some of those concerns. So yeah, they'll have to be they'll have to be adaptive to to some of the points there. I think their adaptation, though, in general, will still be less than what the United States and the international community would like to see, and end up in the end being restrictive towards freedoms. So. 
something that, that, that I kind of find fascinating is that, you know, the U.S. has been involved in Afghanistan for 20 years, but at the same time, Taliban has been involved in 20 years, you know, obviously active for 20 years. So how is that length of time reflected into the Taliban organization? Because kind of on a cursory view of the leadership right now, you know, they all seem to be like 90s and early 2000s guys. So people in their 40s and 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And you don't really, at least my perception is, you don't really see people, you know, Taliban in their 20s or 30s running the country. So then, you know, when, when it comes to that generational divide, A, you know, is there a generational divide? You know, is this something that we should be uh, thinking about? And B, you know, is that is that going to play into leadership and sort of the direction of Afghanistan going forward? Well, I mean, so there is a generational divide. I mean, I've, I've met younger Taliban. And so in some ways, you can see divides that are very similar to what we'd expect there to be. They, they're more likely to have been educated, oftentimes in Afghanistan, like Jalalabad University or Kabul University or in Pakistan. Um, and they're more likely to be you know, very adept at, at, at using social media. They're more likely to be very good at writing. Um, these are some of the folks that I've met within their leadership. But what's harder to, to get, it's harder to understand is, is there a generate, how much is there a generational divide between the fighters and such and the commanders? Or is there a generational divide between the, the commanders who are younger and, and the leadership? It's just much harder to detect that. And one of the other problems is that sometimes, I mean, we like to think that the, the younger generation will be more progressive, but we can also see lots of examples of the younger generation embracing suicide bombing and embracing some more extremist activity. So that, that blurs some of the divide to a greater extent. Have the Taliban changed over time? So I think they have. So yes, their, their leadership right now flows clearly from the 90s on um, I mean broader being the the foremost example of that and and, and, and Muhammad Hassan being another example of that and so there there is a clear flow that that's happened over time there on um, but there's uh, there's also within that on um, change so if you think about their policy in the 90, which we'll take a variety of ways in which their policies have changed. Policy in the 90s was on, we will house and take care of Al-Qaeda and we're not going to, we don't, we'll not turn them over. We will not do anything on to really, we'll, we'll tell them that they can't attack other countries, but the degree to which they're willing to take action on that was limited. So Mullah Omar was famously reticent to do anything against Al-Qaeda or Salman He was extremely worried about what the rest of his movement would think about him if he, if he did something against them. And when, you know, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin wouldn't come see him or wouldn't talk to him, Omar would go, would go see them because he was trying to make sure that his relations weren't going bad. I think the, the Taliban are much more careful in that on that matter. They definitely still have connections to Al Qaeda, but they're also aware of the kind of problems Al Qaeda brought upon them, and they're very aware on um, that they don't want to get drawn into more problems in the future because of Al Qaeda. So that that's a change we've occurred, we, we've seen.
And you so then take someone like Mullah Baradar. So he was essentially the chief executive officer of the Taliban for some time during the aughts. And he changed a lot of their policy, made it, uh, he restricted um, the execution of people in Afghanistan. He stopped there being burnings of schools in Afghanistan. He tried to institute a better uh, structure so that people would report up better to him and there'd be some, and there'd be less freedom um, for individual action that could be disruptive. So Broder took a lot of steps in that regard. And then today we see him as someone who appears to be I mean, he's Taliban, but he appears to be um, interested in peace, interested in compromise, and some degree of inclusivity um, in the leadership, not just being entirely Taliban, but also being, you know, maybe some of their former opponents and such being brought into the government. So that, that's a different shape than we've seen things in the past. And now we've already discussed now about women and education and press to see how some of those changes have occurred over time. So, and then if we just look at, I guess, the composition of, of the Taliban now. So there are people who would say who are younger Taliban, like Mullah Yaqub, Mullah Omar's son, or Sirajuddin Haqqani, Jalaluddin Haqqani's son. I think the, the reason that we, do, we see continuity there is that these people are still the leaders of their families and their organizations. These families are still in power. There hasn't been a change in the families that's been in power, just a change of who in the family is is representing things. So anyways. No, that, that, that makes sense. I kind of want to switch footing to something a little more abstract. And it, it's this idea that the Afghanistan war or the war in Afghanistan seems to be at least kind of, you know, seems to be a comment on the successes and failures of nation and state building. And Kind of the, the question is, how do we connect the nation and the state? And for the longest time, it seems to be that solution was, you know, we're going to create the army, you know, we're going to develop the army, develop the police, and then, you know, that will become not only a way for people to defend themselves, but also a symbol of, of unity and kind of nationalism. But it ultimately kind of fails. It falls apart. So you know, you know, at the top level, you know, what does the war in Afghanistan tell us about the successes and failures of nation and state building? And then why is the idea of an army or a, a sort of, you know, defense force seen as the expression of, of nation building as opposed to, you know, whatever else can be built and, and sort of created? So when you, when you ask this question, I think of Carl Eikenberry. On, and I think of his experience in Afghanistan, and his name probably doesn't ring out as um, as the top of our list of that of American actors in Afghanistan. Because you probably think more about President Bush, President Obama, maybe David Petraeus, um, um, maybe President Biden, certainly. Um, but Eigenberry is, is a uniquely important character in this. Few Americans served as long as he did in different capacities in Afghanistan. And he first gets there in 2002, and he's tasked by Rumsfeld um, to be the security coordinator. And I committed, you know, just got to Afghanistan, but he believes that it's important to build an army, um, and the United States should get involved in that. And he convinces Rumsfeld for that to move forward. And uh, I can very see, kind of like the, the way you were just mentioning things, it's important to create an army that's a national army that conveys the national identity. 
Um, he took great pains to make sure the army represented all the different ethnicities of Afghanistan, Pashtuns, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazaras, um, made sure it wasn't just going to be uh, controlled by warlords, that it was going to be uh, run by the uh, Ministry of Defense. It's a national Ministry of Defense. You got lots of arguments with, with Karzai's ministers to, to make this happen, but um, he forced that to occur. He also understood that the army, though, couldn't, um, that it, it was the Afghans themselves that had to convey nationalism upon their army. That the army couldn't create that nationalism itself. It had to be, it had to be something that Afghans would, would, would impart into it. But then by, by having that there, it could be a symbol for Afghanistan and then also help reinforce and bring Afghanistan together. So he leaves that job in 2000 and end of 2003, comes back in 2005 as the commander of all U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And he's, he still very believes in the army. And, he, and so he puts the effort into trying to, to make sure the army continues to grow. Also over this time, though, what's really important is he realizes that a military solution won't work. He realizes the United States States military can't win the war. The fighting is too hard. There's too much resistance. And he writes a note to President Bush at the end of his time telling him this, saying that this isn't going to succeed. There is no military solution here. The only real solution we can have is handing the war over to the Afghans for them to run things. So he still has some faith in the army and some faith in Afghanistan, that the Afghans, that they can do it. Um, but he's, he, he doesn't believe the United States can no longer do it. Now, President Bush, of course, did, did, respected that, that memorandum, but didn't act on it. Um, and so then we, we then Eikenberry comes back as U.S. ambassador. And this time he's dealing with more of the fraud of Karzai, the deep levels of corruption. And he realizes that he sees that the, the government just won't work. The government isn't a partner that can succeed for us. It's it, the, the, the government leaders have different interests from us. And no matter what we do to try to bring it together, it won't succeed. So he kind of leaves Afghanistan, I think more pessimistic than before, more convinced the military solution isn't going to work. But I guess I'd have to ask him myself on what he saw as the solution at that point. Um, because it, he kind of goes through this change over time in terms of, of, of how he sees things. And that's kind of a long way of saying that how do you do state and nation building and i guess the short answer is if you're not going to stay a long time you're not going to do it and we shouldn't think that we can turn people into a nation now, afghans are they are a nation it's wrong to say they are a nation they're, they're not a nation and there is a state in afghanistan i'll leave it to someone else to say whether they're an actual nation state um but there's a nation and 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 there and there is a state there um but Yes, it does. There, there is a lot of question here about if you go into a country, can you actually make them stand up on their own? Can you create a state there? And my answer would be that if there is not something already there that is bringing the country together and creating the state, then you, we are not going to be able to do it. What we can do is we can, um, we can have some reforms, develop some things, prevent some threats, and that can be maintained while we are there. And as long as we were there, those things can happen. 
But if we leave, there's just a great risk that things are going to regress and, 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 and go poorly. And so like the, the most important thing, to, one of the most important things for policymakers to understand about Afghanistan, one of the most important lessons from it, is that if you're going to go into a country like this, if you're going to do nation building somewhere, you should anticipate that you're going to be there a long time. You should also anticipate that you're not probably going to be able to leave and effectively expect the reforms that, that you've helped create. You're not going to be able to expect to see them leave. So if you know that, then what, what one should be thinking about is how can I have the fewest forces possible, the smallest American presence possible that will still attain my aims? One shouldn't think that I can serve or send in a lot of forces or have some kind of grand success. should simply think about being sustainable. Now, being sustainable means being there for a long time, too. And if that is too costly, if that's not worth it, then the, the, the point would be don't go. That it's probably just better to, 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 to not be involved in this at all than to think that you're going to put forces in and somehow change things. If you're being there for a long time is too expensive, too hard. The option is not to say, I'm going to do things fast and brilliant and with lots of forces and create change. The option then is to stay out. That's interesting to me because it almost it almost seems like that you know the, there's only two choices here in, in, in engaging in state building. One is you you don't do it, or you you sit here and say to yourself that the scale is not going to be 20 years, but it's going to be 40, 50, maybe even you know 100. Which is that's that's kind of that's kind of wild to me because it almost seems like, you know, the sense of 20 years, it almost, it's already, the project already seems kind of futile by the time you hit the 20 year mark, right? You know, how many, how much money or how much resources have to be kind of poured in, in order to create a state and foster a national identity when the, the, you know, the target audience, target population is not interested in engaging that, that, that sort of construction and building. Well, yes, if the target audience isn't interested in it, and um, if, if, then, then that's a, that, that's a strong reason to assume that you're not going to create great change. And I should ask, I mean, there is, there is also what our embassies do throughout the world on a, on a day-to-day basis which is in some degree related to state building um, in which we provide certain levels of assistance to various countries, often through USAID. We'll also provide our, our diplomats which try to give some kind of advice and some kind of assistance to these countries. But the goals in those kind of activities is usually much more about what that particular project is doing and how much success that project will have. It's much more about just kind of muddling through and managing and preventing worse outcomes. It's not really it's hard to call it state building or nation building in the way we've thought about Iraq, Afghanistan, or even, or even Syria. It's more than discrete projects that are doing some, some improvement in this area. And we'll have an embassy there for a long period of time to do these discrete projects. We're not really sure over time how much difference it's going to make, but it's, but it's an okay investment and it usually doesn't involve Americans dying. So with that being said, I think we, we've had a a pretty long, um, conversation and I kind of as per tradition so when we end our conversations we always ask our guest to leave us with something to think about something to chew on something to you know you know at, at minimum it's you know papers to read a book to read or at maximum it's 
you know, here's some ideas that you, you want to leave, leave us to think about. So go ahead. I guess I'd leave you with this. Afghanistan was a, was a long conflict and involved a, a lot of Americans, often trying to do the right thing, sometimes, sometimes doing the wrong thing and sometimes trying to do the wrong thing. Um, but, you know, think about the, try to think about the good Americans tried to do, why they tried to do it. Try to, un- try to think about that we weren't always doing things there for clear, hard reasons. It was often in, in a lot of areas, perhaps mistakenly, because we wanted to do some good. Think about all the Americans who spent time trying to evacuate the Afghans who would work with us. Um, doesn't that say perhaps something good about us as a people? The other thing I would say is for the Afghans who did work with us in the army and, and the police, I'd say try to remember the whole war, not the last, the final 11 days. How many Afghans died fighting? I know many. How many sacrificed their lives? How many families were destroyed in the course of this? Now, and, and that doesn't mean that it was right that that happened. But just to remember that all Afghans did not run in, in the course of this. They had 20 years of sacrifice and pain to, to, to go through. And many of them did things valiantly. Some of them did things far less than valiantly. Um, but history will have a way of overriding the democracy that existed in Afghanistan. It'll have a way of just seeing things in terms of the Taliban and the Taliban are going to try to rewrite history in that direction. So I think it's worthwhile to try to not forget that there was once a democracy in Afghanistan, even if that democracy was flawed and may never, ever return. Awesome. Thank you for those last comments on on that note, that was my guest, Dr. Carter Malkisian. He has written The American War in Afghanistan, A History, and The War Comes to Comes Here, 30 Years of Conflict on the Afghan Frontier. We will have links to those books. Again, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, and, and, and I hope all your listeners have a great day and are doing well. Awesome.